0: Film writer Scott MacDonald tells us about something he calls avant-doc, concerning avant-garde and documentary films. He suggests the two forms not only designate different film histories, they are different kinds of terms. Avant-garde originally referred to the leading edge of a military attack. It was adapted to film from the other arts, particularly from modernist painting first, to identify that body of cinema created during the 1920s by painters and poets and photographers interested in the potential of film, and in the 1960s and 70s to represent the idea that avant-garde filmmakers have often devised new approaches to cinema that have been exploited by commercial movie makers and television advertisers. As the term is currently used, at least in the United States, Avant-garde includes an extremely wide range of approaches to cinema, everything from Oscar Fischinger's forays into visual music to John Waters' early trash films and the slow cinema of Peter Hutton and more. Indeed, the current value of the term is its inclusiveness rather than its designation as any particular approach, though generally speaking, the films included can be understood as explicit or implicit critiques of commercial media and the audience that has developed for it. Documentary has traditionally referred to films that make a truth claim. Of course, any estimable commercial narrative film, like any estimable novel or poem, can be said to offer truths or a truth about human nature and human life, though unlike documentaries, fiction films do not claim to provide actual documents as opposed to dramatizations of the people and places represented. Documentary was first used by John Grierson to refer to Robert Flaherty's Moana from 1926. Grierson said the film had documentary value, meaning presumably that Flaherty had documented aspects of the life of a distant culture. The Samoans that no one else had. Of course, we know that during the production of Nanook of the North and Moana, Flaherty asked the Inuit and the Samoans to reenact elements of their current and or previous ways of life. Basically, he was documenting a fabrication. Nevertheless, these reenactments were produced in collaboration with real Inuit and real Samoans and were filmed in their actual environments. Perhaps the most useful definition of what is a documentary tradition comes from the French nature filmmaker Jean Palluvet. For Palluvet, a documentary is any film that documents real phenomena or their honest and justified reconstruction in order to consciously increase human knowledge through rational or emotional means and to expose problems and offer solutions from an economic, social, or cultural point of view. Obviously, this definition has its own problems. How do we know a documentary is honest or decide it is justified? But it has the advantage of including most all of the films that have usually been considered documentaries. In the course of his study on the meeting of avant-garde and documentary film, MacDonald interviewed the filmmaker Godfrey Reggio and describes his style in this way. In the arts, developments, accomplishments that come to seem outmoded things of the past have a way of reasserting themselves back into artistic practice, often without being recognized as reassertions the traditions of 19th century American landscape painting and of the diorama and panorama have been periodically revived by a range of filmmakers, as have the Lumiere brothers' cinematographe shows that provided early cinema audiences with arresting cine-documents of local and exotic people in quotes and places. During recent decades, Godfrey Reggio and Ron Fricke have directed a series of features that often evoke these earlier forms. They collaborated on one of the more popular and influential avant docs, Koya and this is music of Philip Glass for that film. Both Reggio and Fricke have used technical means unusual for feature filmmaking, complex forms of time lapse and slow motion in other films to create panoramas of cultural sites and practices that attempt to evoke a global consciousness. That from Avant Doc, Intersections of Documentary and Avant Garde Cinema by Scott MacDonald. David Heineman was inspired by the work of Godfrey Reggio in the creation of his recent film titled Nipa Doc, and we'll learn the movie is a documentary but not a traditionally narrative one. Dr. Heineman is Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Commonwealth University the Bloomsburg campus, and he paid a visit to the WVIA studios to talk with us about Nipa Dock before a screening tomorrow evening at the Campus Theater in Lewisburg, and about his interests that led to the film and
1: its form. One of the things that my earliest interest in history came, like many people in high school, right? So I had some high school history teachers who made the subject matter come alive. When I when I went to my undergraduate at Syracuse, I was a dual major in history and speech communication. So I then went on pursued graduate degrees in, in communication studies, focused on rhetoric. But throughout that, often looked at the sort of rhetoric of public memory, right? So how do we use the past in ways that serve our present needs. Not necessarily what's always historically accurate or the most important thing at the time, but for our our needs today, how do we represent, what do we remember, in what ways, and how does that shape our contemporary life? And so that's been a long-running theme just personally and in my research.
0: And haven't we been aware of those questions even more with the statues and the messages about the Civil War? And that's bubbled up a lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I I teach about this as well and uh, often talk to my students about some of those examples around the Civil War. And one of the things that uh, not a lot of people knew for a very long time or at least didn't recognize was how many Confederate monuments were put up sort of at at the height of Jim Crow and the rise of civil rights. Not so much to, to honor Confederate soldiers as much as they were often there to sort of send a message about the you know who rules the South. So taking those down is not about trying to challenge heritage or it, it's about trying to right that particular wrong. So the more you study public memory, the more you find these kinds of things about why do people put forward this idea or this monument, this memorial at this time. And that, that's the background of interest.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in a couple of different places. I grew up uh, mostly in elementary school down towards Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, I had middle school stint in dallas texas area and then uh, most of high school in western pennsylvania sort of near clarion so mostly pennsylvania but the, the time i've been here in northeast pennsylvania in bloomsburg i've been here since 2007 that's the longest i've lived in one place then it's home it yes. is and and i have family roots here as well my great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather are from the taylor area they immigrated from wales
0: we saw that at the end of yeah the, right yeah. that was lovely to have that memory yeah. played out in that way when you were coming to this area to settle and to teach What were some of the things that struck you with your rhetorical lenses on?
1: I I guess, oddly enough, one of the very first things to kind of strike me as this interesting juxtaposition of all things was the Knoebels Mining Museum. Right. So here is this really actually very interesting exhibit about the history of mining in the area. There's good coverage of the accidents and, and some of the very rudimentary gear that miners had to use in the early part of the 20th century, especially. But it's surrounded by amusements and fun in the history of Knoebel. So there's this weird sort of juxtaposition in, in from a rhetorician that's really a striking. So I, I started sort of looking at that. How is history presented in that context? I've done some work looking at the town of Jim Thorpe and the contention around the naming there and that history. So there's, there's a lot of sort of interesting case studies in and around Northeast Pennsylvania that mapped onto existing rhetorical, theoretical interests that seemed like a natural fit. And and that was the lead up for probably the last decade or so to where I eventually started to want to work on the film.
0: And you were not at first a filmmaker.
1: Correct. So until the pandemic, really, I I had a longstanding interest in how does one translate research in public memory, which is generally written for a scholarly audience, into something that's maybe more interesting for a public audience. I have a long-term hobbyist interest in photography and and you know, shooting movies and those kinds of things, just family, home video. But the pandemic, when we couldn't have a lot of social interaction, I felt compelled to really kind of dig into well, how do I find a way to make this public, maybe coming out of the pandemic, and took that time to learn some editing skills and get some cameras and and made a short film that had enough success that I was able to parlay some of that into some some additional funding for NEPADoc.
0: How did you put together in your mind the form? We know content form, you might have a story to tell. You had some examples of something filmic that struck you as maybe a good way to do what you were hoping to accomplish in this piece.
1: Yeah, so somewhere along the line, I don't remember when I first saw these, in fact, but uh, I was introduced to nonverbal documentary films, chiefly through probably the best-known examples, Godfrey Reggio's *Koyaanisqatsi*. de Scotsi, and Ron Fricke's films Baraka and Samsara. Um, And Fricke had been the uh, cinematographer for Reggio's film, Koyaanisqatsi. So they they have a history of working together. And seeing those, I I was just really impressed as someone who studies, as part of looking at public memory, the importance of the visual, how they were able to communicate global themes with just images and uh, and Philip Glass's score and bring those together in a way that made a powerful film where no one said anything. And so I I wanted to to take a stab at that, I thought, as a first-time filmmaker with a limited budget. It was a good subgenre of documentary to take a stab at, and uh, that was some of the inspiration along the way.
0: You were able, because you must have an innate sense of poetry or rhythm or some sort of organic feeling for music, to create a film that does have a flow and an ebb and an arc and you take us on a journey, and we are drawn in. How do you think you did that?
1: Well, well, thank you for the compliment. it's It's been great to hear a lot of people find that in the film. And one one of the ideas with a nonverbal film is that it does allow the audience to to kind of map their own experiences onto things in in ways that, you know talking heads and in interviews and so forth make it tougher to do in most documentaries. So, yeah, I, I paid a lot of attention to the relationship between sound and image, to the editing work. Uh, we often tried to find images that were fairly universal representations of some of the themes in the film that weren't just about Northeast Pennsylvania, although that's where they were filmed, but that would have broader appeal as well. And so that that's as true for the historical archival footage as it is for the more contemporary footage that we shot. And the way that we, we put this film together is we we typically you know, we'd go shoot and find archival footage, all this other kind of we would create the segment first saying, okay, we, we want the segment to sort of roughly be this length, have these ideas, these present. And then you know, a big part of the film's effect is the score's connection to that. So uh, I worked with a composer by the name of Dave Crago from the Lewisburg area. We both dabble in uh, analog synthesizers. And so... We would often watch segments or talk about segments at length. Well, what's the feeling we want to go along with these images? Is this supposed to be more sad? Is it supposed to be more of an industrial kind of peppy sound? And uh, we spent a lot of time. It was all the the score is performed live, improvisationally. It's not done in you know Pro Tools or or Garage Band or those kinds of things. So uh, it's all real instruments, all performed live, it matched up to to the images that we were trying to put in the film.
0: And you have a real sensitivity, and you certainly call our attention to the history of the region, the indigenous roots. And you point out in the text that the film was shot on somebody else's land.
1: Yeah, so one of the one of the groups, the film is a very collaborative project. So even though I'm the director, I I worked with a lot of area organizations, things like the Pennsylvania Anthracite Heritage Museum, the Lumber Museum. I worked with, in the case of what you're talking to, the Lenape Cultural Center in Easton. And so the the imagery that is connected to the Lenape, for most part, came from them. Wanted to make sure that the film represented not only that they were the origins of this land and the, the history of it, but also they appear throughout the film, they're still here, right, and, and still present. And so I think that Northeast Pennsylvania isn't unique in that there's a, a history of land being taken cheaply, exploited for resources, and, and usually people who are of you know, poorer means suffering for that. And that was as true for the Lenape as it became for a lot of immigrants over time.
0: And that's The perfect segue into then the mining communities where the extractive industries owned by the barons and so forth who lived in those beautiful homes that you gave us to see. And the cost to the environment, the cost to the people, all of that, you make us feel that.
1: Right. I I definitely try to show as much as I can what it felt like to be in that society or in that dynamic, the wealth growth and wealth disparity. Because often when when we think of that, as with most of the history of this region is an industrial history. So it's typically very granular and statistical. How many tons of yield did this thing or what was the percentage of people from this nationality or this and and all of that research is important and a good way to understand but the film takes a different tack obviously and and tries to give a sense of you know what did it look like to live in these houses or to live in these kind of communal gatherings um uh, what were the interests and concerns of people who were running the mines or who were the lumber barons and what were the interests and concerns of the people who worked there and and to try to represent that visually where the audience can kind of tie the pieces together themselves
0: and you don't leave us at what was deep mining, for example. We see fracking.
1: Yeah. So the the film moves through three different energy cycles as kind of the, the structure of the history of the region lumber era, the coal era, and now this sort of hybrid era, which includes fracking, but also renewable energies. I've I've in presenting this film often found people as frustrated by the aesthetics of windmills on the hill that bother them as they are by the groundwater pollution of fracking. So I I try to organize the film chronologically that way and certainly make some suggestions about parallels over those periods and maybe some lessons that we have and haven't learned over time.
0: There is poetry in the imagery and the way you segue from one to the other clouds is one way you can Mm -hmm. give us some beauty and, of course, the natural shots and the animals and birds and so forth that are there and beautiful in their own right, but they can be threatened too.
1: Yeah. One of the things that uh, often get as a comment, and I've had a chance to screen this, is that you know, people highlight the, the resilience theme in the film, right? So whether that's the resilience of people over time, for example, we mentioned immigrants, a lot of immigrants are often met by hate. But persevere and uh, then sometimes hate the new group of immigrants that come in, but also the natural world. So, you know, the lumber industry decimated the hills in this region, caused a lot of fires. The Pennsylvania Department of, of Environmental Protection was created as a result of the lumber industry. I think I got the acronym correct. And we, we see renewal on those hills and, and beauty returning. And, and we have such a rich biodiversity in this region. And the film wanted to highlight that that has persisted, but that it also is, is often still under threat.
0: Also, as you close out, you give us real close-ups of living, breathing people now and young people. There are people that we could look at and say, I know that person, right? Sure, yeah.
1: So uh, there, there's a recurring piece through the film of portraiture, where uh, I, whether that's portraiture from archival footage or uh, sh- footage that we shot. And, and we, we basically asked people to stare at the camera for as long as possible while we moved it slowly and played with speed and those kinds of things. And the, the effect we hope for from that is, is that, right, that people can, if they don't identify the person directly, can see the, the human element of the larger you know, industrial environmental history of this area, right? So we try to, to keep centering it back to culture and people, and portraiture is one way of doing that well.
0: And what about the notion of monuments? Because you take us through a wide array in the coda of the memorials.
1: Yeah, so so the coda is highlighting the those monuments, memorials, statues, those kinds of things to lumber and coal primarily, and, and some of the, the tragedies of those eras, but also some of the, the resilience that we refer to. And, you know, from my point of view, the, the film, in the way that I present those scenes is probably making some suggestions about which of those monuments memorials are, are well presented to the public, where people can come and learn from them and maybe garner something from the lessons that they provide, and others in the area that are maybe a little less well positioned and less well kept up and that maybe you know need to be considered anew. So certainly, again, the idea of nonverbal film is not to make an argument, and so I don't want to do that on the radio either, but I definitely think that when one watches the history and then thinks about how have we remembered it, it with these monuments memorials, There are some things that we could probably do better.
0: The Latimer Massacre and the Great Stone in the crossroads where the massacre took place with the deputies armed and the unarmed, largely immigrant mine workers and the shooting incident that killed so many, many of them running away, being shot in the back and the justice not being done in, in the trial the way you present that monument is to get the cars going very fast and people are going past it and don't even know what it is.
1: Yeah. So, I, I, you know, if you've been to where the Latimer Monument, the monument itself is quite nice and there's a little coal cart there by it, but there's no marked or obvious kind of parking nearby. You can sort of figure out if you're there for a minute, but uh, even then there's not enough parking for more than a person or two typically. And you, you do you have to cross this sort of often busy road to get to it and there's not a lot of signage kind of indicating it. And there's there's a marker there telling you a little bit about it. But given its significance to the area, and, and a lot of these monuments are, are marking things that aren't only important to this area, but ended up being pretty important in the history of labor for the country more broadly. And especially with our kind of current reconsideration of labor writ large across the country, I think that it's important to to look to that past and maybe recognize some things from it which have been lost, which, you know, to a certain extent maybe. These memorials could have done a better job of, of recognizing and with no offense, certainly to folks who are in charge of these monuments memorials. A lot of times they were built with very few funds, built often by people who are closely connected to the event and, and not by the maybe people who you know, were in power and perpetuated them. So uh, I, I think that more cultural awareness in the area of these sites and what they maybe could be uh, would be one great outcome from people seeing the film.
0: We learned about your film from a representative of the Sierra Club. Mm -hmm. But it's not just an environmental film. It gives us an aesthetic experience. I would think that you would be screening it for an audience of people who love film.
1: Yeah, so we we did screen the film at the Black Bear Film Festival in, in Milford last month and had a really nice reception for it there. I was fortunate enough to get some advice from both Godfrey Reggio and Ron Fricke while working on the film, and uh, Godfrey Reggio looked at a rough cut and gave me some suggestions. So, I mean, it was really this kind of a dream come true <laughs> in terms of a first stab at making a feature film in this style to get some input from, from the greats, and uh, I think that has helped it find some audiences outside of people who are just interested in history or environmental groups and and I I appreciate the uh, the recognition of the art involved because there's absolutely a, a lot of consideration of aesthetics throughout the film sound and images and editing and it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work to sort of pan that out and make it work in in the way it does
0: you used the term autodidactic meditation now yeah. what would that mean then
1: it's, it's uh, maybe a fever dream where you wake up and feel like you learned something. <laughs> so that's a phrase that uh, Reggio suggested is a way of kind of thinking about making the film one where it teaches people by kind of putting them almost in a trance to, to want to learn and to teach themselves. And so another way of thinking about this that's a little bit closer to my own field would be something like a, a visual enthymeme. So the, the notion of an enthymeme is that instead of offering two premises and a conclusion. You take one of those things away with the idea being the audience fills in the missing piece and the argument and the persuasion is stronger because they have done it themselves. And so I've tried to, in this film, do that in a way that that works visually. So, oh, I can see these parallels. There's not an argument specifically being made, but I get the point.
0: Trusting that we will come away from it edified and and touched, and that's the beauty too. It's head and heart.
1: Yeah, I, ideally that's the way that it works. And it's, it's often kind of, documentary format that most people have not seen. And so I think that the, the novelty of it alone drives some of that as well, right? Just the idea of I've not seen a movie like this before, and I'm not sure what to think about it. So let me ponder it a bit as I as I review it. And, and that tends to generate a lot of those critical thinking processes that the film is meant to stoke.
0: Now, where can we see it?
1: So uh, the next screening is going to be on November 15th at the Campus Theater in Lewisburg. It's being co-sponsored by the local Sierra Club chapter, as well as a couple of different departments at Bucknell University, and uh, that'll be at 7 o'clock on Wednesday the 15th. And then uh, we'll be taking a a little bit of a hiatus during the the holidays, but we, we have, I think at this point, almost about a dozen other screenings in the region that we've not announced, but that are tentative dates in the spring.
0: Dr. David Heinemann associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Commonwealth University, the Bloomsburg campus. He is author of the book Thinking About Video Games, Interviews with the Experts, issued by Indiana University Press. And he was recently featured on NPR's Pop Life podcast, discussing some of his research. You can see his film, Nipa Dak, and that's tomorrow evening, November 15th at 7 o'clock at the Campus Theater in downtown Lewisburg, 7 o'clock at the Campus Theater, co-sponsored by the Sierra Club and various departments at Bucknell University. For more information on the web, davidheineman.net, davidheineman.net, H-E-I-N-E-M-A-N. The film is Nipa Doc. N-E-P-A, space, DOC, capital D-O-C. And you can see it tomorrow evening at 7 at the Campus Theater in Lewisburg. For more information, on the web, David heineman.net. And again, this is music of Philip Glass from Koyanakotsi.